right now, only 15% of the population in Latin America believe in politicians. And that is not good neither, because there are good politicians. Hello, folks. Welcome to the third episode of the season. My name's Sam Johannes, and I'm actually the producer of IRS Podcast Global. Shameless plug, I used to be a host, too. Check out my interviews on some of the first season episodes, like Russia and Syria, where I interviewed folks like Senator Lindsey Graham and, and the late Senator John McCain. But to be honest with you, I am inserting myself into the normal podcast process because I want to explain why we're releasing Global a week late this month. To make a long story short, we were planning on making the March episode about the Nigerian elections, but as you may know by now, the elections were postponed uh, early in the morning on Election Day, which kind of threw off our whole production schedule. Either way, we'll have a Nigeria-focused episode in the coming months once everything settles down. In the meantime, this month, your trusty host, Travis Green, is going to guide you through El Salvador, a Massachusetts-sized Central American country that's dealt with a lot of themes common to the region, like violent left-right political divisions held over the Cold War, long-running institutional corruption, and organized crime. That said, El Salvador broke with tradition in its recent February presidential elections, where Nayib Bukele, a third-party outsider candidate uh, who was running against the two dominant parties, won in the first round in a surprise victory uh, predicated in large part on strong anti-corruption messaging. For this episode, Travis interviewed three guests as always. Uh, First, Eric Olson director of the Seattle International Foundation's Central America DC platform and a consultant to the Woodrow Wilson Center's Latin America program. Second, Travis interviewed Glenda Umania, a journalist for CNN and Espanol who covered El Salvador during the most recent presidential elections. And third, Travis got to interview the vice president-elect of El Salvador, Dr. Felix Ulloa, who, uh, along with President-elect Nayib Bukele, ran an innovative campaign that ultimately ended uh, decades of two-party rule. Giving a little bit of context to set up those interviews, Travis spoke with IRI's program manager for the Northern Triangle in Mexico, Laura Boyette Alvarez. Uh, But that's enough from me, so I'll let Travis take it away. So Laura Boyette Alvarez, thank you so much for being with us here today. We're going to talk a little bit about the broader context of El Salvador and kind of why the most recent presidential elections were so pivotal and important. Let's just start off super broad. Why is El Salvador an important country to pay attention to and what is its impact on the region? That's a really great question. Um, El Salvador is one of the smallest countries in our hemisphere, but it is also really important for several reasons. The total population of El Salvador is about 6.5 million, but it's estimated that approximately 1.5 million people are born born in El Salvador now live in the United States. People born in El Salvador are now the fifth largest migrant community in the United States. 
The U.S. has very long and complicated historical ties in El Salvador. Since the end of the Civil War, the U.S. has continued to maintain a close relationship with each presidential administration. Because of geographical proximity, the cultural and migratory ties, and the importance of connected economic zones throughout the hemisphere, the relationship is significant to both countries. So El Salvador has had a bit of a difficult history. You mentioned the fact that there was a civil war. Um, can you talk to us briefly and let us know how El Salvador got to be democratic and how it got to be where it is today? Sure. So El Salvador had a civil war that lasted many years. And after the negotiated peace agreement took place in Mexico in 1992, El Salvador first held democratic elections in 1994. Throughout the post-war period, the two main parties really dominated politics. That's the right-wing conservative nationalist Republican Alliance, or ARENA and the left-wing socialist Farabunda Marti Liberation Front, FMLN, made up predominantly of former guerrillas. But over the last several years, both ARENA and FMLN have confronted significant corruption scandals, including former presidents from both parties accused of specific acts of corruption. So corruption sits at the middle of El Salvador's most pressing challenges. Lack of accountability at many levels of El Salvador's government make it nearly impossible to ensure that everyday citizens can enjoy a life free from the fear associated with gangs and criminal networks. While corruption is known to stagnate economic growth, reducing the number of jobs and economic opportunities available, particularly to young people. First up, we've got Eric Olson talking about some of the historical background of El Salvador. We know that El Salvador's civil war ended in 1992. Following the war, the two belligerent sides essentially both became political parties and started vying for power through elections. So how did we go from a civil war to then having two dominant political parties? As you mentioned, the civil war in El Salvador lasted about 12 years, started in 1980 and ended with a peace accord signed in Mexico City in 1992. The conflict was a kind of a classic Cold War, left-right type conflict, but also had to do with the long history of conflict over access to land. Remember that Salvador is a tiny country with a fairly dense population. And the second big thing, of course, that led to civil war was the inability of leftists writ large to participate in any kind of elections. Uh, They were being killed. They were being pushed out. This all resulted in a 12-year conflict that ended, thankfully, in 92 with a signed peace accord. Now, ARENA, who is one of the historic parties, you know, very conservative pro-business, was actually in control of the presidency. President Cristiani was in office and was one of the ones that brought the civil war to an end. So ARENA has been a historic party for some time early on. They were connected to what have been called right-wing death squads and militias and unlawful armed groups. But nevertheless, ARENA itself was a political party. And as I say, the president at the time was from the ARENA party. The FMLN was a conglomeration of about five different armed guerrilla groups that came under the banner of the FMLN and were the core of the armed opposition. So they became a official registered political party after the signing of the police court and then could compete in elections. So so you mentioned access to land, you mentioned political participation as some of the driving motives of that civil war. 
Could you comment as El Salvador shifted into its democratic stage, how these issues, did they recede? Were they resolved? How did they kind of inform the political climate of El Salvador moving forward? Yes, interestingly enough, the process of reaching a peace accord tried to tackle several of the key issues in Salvadoran society, and it opened up much more possibility for landless peasants to have access to land. But it also had to do with depoliticizing the security forces, creating what is now known as the civilian national police, not a military police, a civilian professional non-partisan police force. And this was something that the international community, especially the United States, but Europeans as well, really uh, invested in and contributed to. It was important because the police and especially the armed forces of El Salvador had been viewed as very partisan, very much there to defend Arena and the elite and against the ideals of poor people in the country. And then allowing the FMLN to become a political party and and compete in elections, uh, those are all issues that were dealt with in negotiation that allowed this armed group to uh, surrender its weapons in exchange for democratic participation. After you've kind of set the scene now with these two dominant political parties, if we fast forward to today and most recently in the February elections, we saw the emergence of a very strong candidate not tied to either of those parties, but had links to both. So I wonder if you could maybe comment a little bit on what is it that made the people of El Salvador gravitate towards something different? Like what is it that pushed people away from these parties? Yeah, I would say it was more of a process of slowly rejecting the political parties. It wasn't a sudden thing. The most obvious one has to do with the high levels of corruption that emerged. Three former presidents of El Salvador have been investigated and accused of very high-level corruption while in office. And so these corruption scandals that eroded public confidence in the presidents and politicians and politicians from both political parties really caught up with both ARENA and FMLN and led to a rejection of them as uh, viable political alternatives. ARENA still remains a strong political party with you know roughly 30% support. Uh, FMLN has really come apart uh, in, over the last two administrations because of corruption, other issues as well. I think those are the main factors. There are other issues, of course, the economy and and security and gangs and all sorts of things. But the main issues, the main things that drove people away from the traditional parties and towards an alternative, in this case, the president-elect Nayib Bukele, uh, was the issue of corruption. Great. I want to dig into corruption a little bit more in a second. But before we move to that, maybe you could comment on President-elect Bukele's party and his electoral victory and presence. He clearly swept many electoral districts that have been steady supporters of both the two dominant parties. What What is it that he did differently? Or is it simply that he does not represent the corruption that is tied to some of these other parties? Well, yeah, I think he effectively positioned himself as not being from these two political parties. He had been the mayor of, uh, of uh, San Salvador, the capital, as a member of the FMLN, but they famously or infamously forced him out of the political party 
And so he was able to construct a, an image, a program, an agenda that was anti the establishment of both political parties, definitely took advantage of the generalized public frustration, anger at traditional parties and of corruption. He does not have his own political party. He started a, a, a political movement called New Ideas, Nuevas Ideas, but he didn't register it in time. So he had to join forces with another smaller, actually very conservative party to be able to run for president. I suspect eventually he will form his own political party out of Nueva Ideas. You, you kind of mentioned a little bit how corruption became an issue for the parties. And I wanted to ask, obviously, corruption is a, is a huge problem. But do you think corruption comes from these links to the party? Or is it the offices that they occupy? Because you mentioned, for example, that two presidents from ARENA and one from FMLN have been convicted of the different crimes around corruption. Do people link that to the institution of the presidency, for example, or do they link it to their positions within a party? What was going on in El Salvador, what's happened in Honduras and Guatemala and many other places is that presidents became more a monarchies than actual part of a democratic government. They were not being held accountable by effective legislatures, by an independent press, and most importantly, in my mind, an independent attorney general and independent courts. And I think when Salvador finally elected an attorney general who was strong and independent and not partisan, then investigations into these high-level corruption scandals began to proceed. When, when was that election of that attorney general? If I'm not mistaken, 2014. Douglas Menendez, his name was. You know, what happens in El Salvador, the political parties in Congress essentially select the next attorney general, they either reaffirm one or they select one. And so the political parties got together and said, well, we can't have another corrupt and ineffective attorney general. We will elect uh, this guy who had been in the federal prosecutor's office, but he was not particularly well known as a champion of anti-corruption. But he had independence. He was very professional. Manetis immediately proceeded against these three high-level people, presidents, and a variety of other folks involved in corruption. And I think that's what contributed to people's just outrage over the levels of corruption in both political parties. I mean, many people assume that there's high levels of corruption, but when you have an attorney general actually providing concrete evidence and bringing cases to trial, I think it makes a big difference for people. Sadly, in 2018, last year, Menendez was up for re-election, and the Congress got together and decided not to re-elect him. Now, that's their prerogative, but I think all of us are fearful that there could be a slide back into that passivity. I'm not suggesting that the current attorney general is corrupt, but, you know, it's been early. It's been a couple months. But I think, to your question, unless there are these independent actors that can hold presidents accountable, can investigate the risks of high levels of corruption is, is very real. Definitely. And I also understand that 
President-elect Bukele has really made anti-corruption a central part of his campaign. Do you think that his election will push other parties to really step up their efforts on being much more transparent and clean? Well, I certainly hope so. And I think one of the exciting possibilities of the Bukele administration is his commitment and the steps he's already taking towards creating a, a, an anti-corruption mechanism with the support of the international community. Guatemala took this first step with the creation of the CICIG, which is a UN-based anti-corruption mechanism. Uh, Honduras subsequently did. They have an OAS-based mechanism. These mechanisms are imperfect in some ways, but certainly have made enormous contributions to anti-corruption efforts. And the fact that Bukele is also proposing the creation of a similar mechanism to fight corruption, I think is promising. So corruption takes on lots of different areas of life, but also all the way up to the presidential level. Could you talk about how maybe for this most recent election, corruption was something that might have motivated voters to turn out? So definitely based on Bukele's win in the first round, um, you can kind of see his win as a mandate from the public to fight corruption because Bukele, very interestingly, came from um, a background of, of running um, under the FMLN party. In fact, he was the mayor of two different um, municipalities in El Salvador, including San Salvador, for the FMLN party. But then he was expelled from the party several years ago. And in his uh, search to, for a political party to run for president, um, he couldn't find one that could be, he could register with in time. And so he actually ran underneath the um, Ghana party, which is the Grand Alliance for National Unity, which is a right-wing party. And so he really is kind of embodying a rejection of the old guard of politics and an embracing of the new class, the new generation of pol politicians in El Salvador. So the election was also, in a way, a test on the different institutions in charge of carrying out the elections. These most recent presidential ones were clearly free and fair. There was no large discrepancies. There was no voter fraud, which is definitely something to be celebrated. I wonder if we could talk in a little bit about, you know, what needs to happen between now and the next cycle of elections to further strengthen and solidify the electoral processes at the institutional level. Absolutely. So the TSC really did a fantastic job in these elections. It went off largely without a hitch, um, which I think is a fantastic accomplishment for the TSC. It's as a positive note as well for this year um, for the hemisphere where five more countries will elect presidents in the region. Um, so moving on from these elections, the, there are several things that are really a priority for El Salvador to ensure um, elections in the future continue to be free and fair. The first thing to note is the ballot design for the legislative elections. So in 2018, there were eight parties presenting candidates in San Salvador for 24 seats. So that meant that the ballot in San Salvador had 192 faces. It looked more like a pillowcase than what you think an electoral ballot should look like. Citizens can vote by party flag, by party flag with preferential votes, or across party lines. So with so many candidates and so many options of how to vote, it's incredibly easy to accidentally nullify your vote. So that's probably the number one biggest thing that the Electoral Reforms Commission should be looking at. 
Um, after that, there are some other major issues that should be um, addressed, including the fact that the TSC is both the organizer and the arbiter of the electoral process. So not only do they put together the entire system for the electoral campaign period to the election day to counting of the votes, but the TSC is also responsible for making calls on electoral disputes. In most other countries, uh, there is an electoral justice body that handles these types of disputes, um, such as the electoral prosecutor or FEPALE in Mexico, or in the case of the United States, for example, we just use the regular court system. Coming up next, we've got Glinda Umania. Glinda, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I wanted to start off by looking a little bit at the media landscape, both within El Salvador, but also in the Latin America region as a whole. So can you maybe to start us off from your experience, can you tell us how media coverage of elections and presidential elections in particular has changed in Latin America in the last three to five years? It's a little different in each country. I was born in Costa Rica, and part of my career was at Costa Rica and United States with CNN Español. So I have had the privilege of developing journalism in a good way. I mean, in a good ethical way, in the way it has to be, with totally freedom, which doesn't happen in all the countries. A lot of our colleagues, you know, they have been killed or threatened. But in talking about specifically about elections, one of the biggest challenges are the ties between the media, between the newspapers, the newscasts, the radio shows, the radio news shows, and the commercial ties, you know, and in that case, the political ties. So every journalist should just, you know, have the balance to inform of each political candidate or of each party the same way. And Travis, you were talking about how, you know, how it has changed in Latin America. This year, 2019, there's going to be presidential elections in six countries in Latin America. We already had it in El Salvador. Next is Panama, then Guatemala, and then we'll have Argentina, Uruguay, and Bolivia. So in El Salvador, we just saw something totally different concerning our job as reporters, as journalists, because the candidate that won the election, Najib Bukele, you know, he was not giving press conference. For example, the day that we were having the presidential debate, at the same time, he was having a Facebook Live presenting his future program. So we are seeing different elements. One is, you know, the behavior of the people. In El Salvador, people were angry after the, the war and the peace agreement. For 30 years, the government was lit between two parties. And what happened before this election? A lot of corruption. The former president Saka Jail from the right wing arena and former president Funes from the left wing FMLN is in Nicaragua because he was also going to, you know, to be on courts for corruption. You know, so Najib Bukele, now president elected, feed that angerness of the people against the corruption, against the two parties. And that was very good for him because he's also totally different from the normal candidates, like he is younger, he has a lot of charisma, the communication with people through social media, even the way he dresses, you know, without tie. So that is like a big lesson, not only for Salvador, not only for Latin America, it's, it's for the whole world. 
And, you know, some people were complaining, what, how come instead of talking with the press, he's showing his Christmas gifts or just things of lifestyle. And people that voted with him, that's what they like. The last two to three years has been very distinct in that outsider candidates have taken on a level of prominence in many, many countries. And it, this has really redefined the way that politics and media and society all interact. Can you talk a little bit about how social media or other forms of new media have contributed to this trend? It's a very good tool in a way. It's a very good tool to express but at the same time, it's a very bad tool for confusion and for fake news, as we know. So it's a combination. But right now, only 15% of the population in Latin America believe in politicians. And that is not good neither, because there are good politicians. And that's where the media, not only the social media, because anybody can report breaking news right now. But the, it's our job to put that in context. Today, we have that challenge of not pointing only the bad, only the corruption. We need also to emphasize things that are well done. In El Salvador, there are some rumors at this time that we are recording this, that maybe former candidate Hugo Martinez, he was also former Secretary of State, he could be the next Secretary of State with Najib Bukele. I think that that would be great because it's somebody that has the experience, somebody that wants to serve his country. So why only think about parties? I think is if you're interested in a country, everybody has to work together. And I think the media has a, a very important role underlining that, trying to do journalism of peace, which is it's, it's a challenge to normally the media only underline the bad things. You know, everything is, is wrong and the bad things. So we need to make an effort to cover the reality. And although the social media, a lot of people just see Facebook as their uh, most important source, still people like uh, to read stories that are deep and that are, you know, invest good investigations. Definitely. And I think kind of what you're saying that outsider candidates aren't necessarily a consequence of the social media, but it's more that social media and new media is able to kind of bring them a little bit closer to voters because of the failure of other established parties. I think that that's extremely accurate and spot on. I wanted to, to kind of dig in a little bit more to President-elect Bukele's kind of interaction with the media in El Salvador itself. Presidential debates have often been a way that candidates at different levels can have a frank conversation with voters, and it's an opportunity for them to kind of broadcast their policies directly, right? So I'm, I'm curious, what do you think the impact for elections moving forward from now is on how candidates are going to interact with their constituents if somebody, as President Bukele just exemplified, can skip a presidential debate and have his own direct contact? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I think you have to have a special talent also of communication, of, of theater. I mean, of course, candidates have to act. The way you, you dress, as I was saying, the way you talk. And in this case, for Najib Bukele, he's 37 years old. He's closer to, to social media. But it is very important, not only for elections, Travis, not only for elections, it is important for the governments to have a new way of communication to their people, to the audience. 
And one thing, for example, that I noticed from my perspective when Najib Bukele won, when he was talking to the people and, of course, he was celebrating all, all these people, the, the first thing, in my point of view, he should have done is to, you know, get the country together after, you know, all the divisions. Now let's work together. In that moment, in that moment, he w- that was not his message, you know. So um, one thing that he has to deal with is that the, the less Congress people are from his party. So he has to deal with that. He has to do agreements, although the behavior of the representatives from the other two parties, you know, are already saying that they would love to work with him, which is good, which is good. So everybody is looking at this process to something really new. Up until now, we've kind of focused mostly on the media, the role of the media, and how the media affects elections. But looking at um, Bukele's campaign, what is it that separates his use of social media from other candidates who might have used social media? My colleagues here also have informed me that Bukele also heavily relied on traditional media and distribution outlets. He obviously had such a powerful presence on social media as well, as you mentioned with the Facebook Live. But but what is it that distinguishes his use of it from some of the others? Okay, just the way he communicates. He was like a millennial. We have to underline that El Salvador is very conservative, you know, it's very traditional. So the other candidates didn't were not doing that. They were just very, very formal in their explanation, in their messages. And also, I have to say something from my point of view. Language and communication has changed and politicians have to change too. They cannot talk the same way they have been doing it for years okay like formal speeches they have to talk to the people like friends but also with content honestly in Ajibu Keles I think it was necessary to have more content from my point of view but he won that way with selfies and that kind of communication but I think it was because again people were really mad of what has happened with corruption and he was emphasizing on that message. That's the, his message. They had to return what they stole. People believe in him because he was not from the two traditional parties. So it's very, very, very important who he's going to put with him in the government, something that hasn't been announced. And again, for me now, it's important, very important that he has a good communication with the media, although in the past, in his campaign, he didn't accept the interviews with the local media. I think this is the time to get together and say, hey, uh, here I am to answer all your questions and, you know, just to be very open. I think it's, it's, it, it will be a good and a necessary start. Definitely. And it's always great and encouraging when there is a healthy relationship between government and the press. And that typically flows to a healthy electorate and constituency as well. But I was wondering if, from your perspective as an observer within El Salvador during this most recent elections, can you talk a little bit about what some of the efforts were around mobilizing people, around educating people, not only on what the campaign slogans are or what the platforms of the parties might be, but informing voters on where do they register? How does the process itself work? Where do they go to if they have questions about where their ballot is? Things like that. I think 
in a way, there was a very big effort from the Electoral College to, for example, motivate people to vote and explaining why should we vote? What does it mean for me to vote? Why does my vote count? But not all the same sentences. Give example with the people to give an example. How does an average family lives? What are their concerns? What are their expectations? What are their needs? But I think the Electoral College has to have more training uh, in general from the people that talk to the media. It's very important to talk with enthusiasm, to transmit that interest. And I have seen they have good plans. They have a good explanations of how to vote, how the process is. And that, that is very good because people feel included. But also we have to teach people how you take a decision. For example, Travis, I remember last year I was myself on the line to vote, and I had two women next to me that were going to vote too. And before getting, you know, to vote, they were telling me, I really don't know whom I'm going to give the vote to. Seconds before voting, they didn't know whom to vote. So the Electoral College has to invest in communicating better with the people. In There's many ways right now through social media, and they have been efforts, but I think it's not only the social media, it's also the people that talk to the regular media. So shifting a little bit to look at President-elect Bukele's upcoming term, he is going to inherit some pretty hefty challenges. El Salvador is infamous for the internal struggles to maintain citizen security that has pushed a lot of outmigration. You have already mentioned and we've talked, started talking about what corruption looks like. What do you think or what is it, has he indicated are going to be his priorities within El Salvador? Yeah, so President-elect Bukele's agenda has already focused primarily on corruption. Um, he started already talking about um, some ways that he thinks that El Salvador should address it. And this has included his indication that he'd be open to an international commission against impunity, similar to the CSIG in Guatemala, which is a UN international body. And he's placed his vice president-elect, Felix Ulloa, in charge of that issue. Um, in addition to the overarching issue of corruption, Bukele has outlined several issues that his governance plan should address, including issues that all relate to the pushes of migration. Um, these focus on promoting social well-being, including the basic meeting the basic needs of Salvadorans um, to live and to develop as a country, security, migration, and job opportunities. And to do this, he's highlighted the need to focus on manufacturing and technology while also seeking the necessary financing to achieve these goals. Considering that he used to work with FMLN and he has kind of taken on a part that used to be a part of ARENA, Ostensibly, he has some pretty good links, but he could also have some potential enmities with much of the political machinery that's already in place. Moving forward, how will the presidency and the Congress work together to further some of these goals around corruption, for instance? I think that's probably the biggest question that remains to be seen for Bukele's presidency. I think he rubbed a lot of people wrong, as anybody does in in an election cycle. You have to say things against other candidates, so that's going to be a real challenge for him as he's attempting to make um, progress on, on his campaign promises and to, to create the El Salvador that he wants to see. He's going to have to find opportunities for consensus with 
all different parties, not just with FMLN and Arena, but also with his party, Ghana, and the other political parties that hold seats in the National Assembly and at the, at the local level as well. For our last interview, we've got Dr. Felix Uyoa, the Vice President-Elect. Dr. Uyoa, thank you so very much for taking the time to speak with us. You have a very long career being politically and socially engaged. You're going back to your days as a student. You've worked for several international organizations that work on democracy as well. You have a very impressive background, and I'm curious to hear from you directly. What is it that motivated you to run for public office and why now? It is hard for me to understand why I am in this situation right now as Many people know I was the legal advisor of uh, Nayib Bukele once he ran for office as a mayor in San Salvador. And we have this sort of friendship since that time. When, when he decided to run for president, at that time he said, okay, Felix, we decide that you will be part of the ticket. So that was it. It, it, it wasn't a plan. It was this very short situation that I, I haven't had time. But to think unless this is right thing to do or not, it was just an immediate reaction. As I history knocked the door on my house and I just opened the door and, and I'm here. It's by coincidence, it's by is it the luck, is the fate? I don't know. But mostly of the opinions in the political field was that this is the, the better ticket because it's a combination uh, between the youth and a young leader and his connection with the the youth, and a person like myself, a more senior, a retired lawyer, with uh, experience uh, over the past years. Of course, uh, and you mentioned, uh, I have been working as a scholar, as a politician, as a member of civil society organization, and so on. Therefore, it's not something strange for me to take this new challenge in my life and try to bring to El Salvador this new hope. Because the decision, the decision of the people made of this last election, it was a, a political fatigue with the 30 years of two-party system was enough. And the people decide to give chance and open an opportunity to a third way. And that is our commitment now. Try to honor these hopes of the people uh, in the next five years, which is the term that will be in office. Well, fantastic. Thank you for that. I find that absolutely intriguing. And the balance between your ticket was really compelling, I think. And you alluded to my next question as well on the political fatigue that the Salvadorian voters felt with the two-party system. How can this third party with new kind of outsider faces who do have experience on their own, but nonetheless are seen somewhat as being outside the traditional political spheres, how can this new party have been so successful? Well, uh, as you said, this is a big challenge and try to understand exactly what the people are expecting from us. And also, this is not a phenomenon that's happened only in El Salvador. Same happened in Mexico recently, same happened in Brazil, same happened in the United States, same happened in France. I mean, the political party system has delivered in a way that the people, they, they're not satisfied. Even though in France or in the United States, the two-party system has made the balance and has created a strong democracy. The moment that the, the population and the people can try to, to make something different. Uh, it's not the same in Latin America. 
In Latin America, corruption in the political system in all the, 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 the states' agencies has created misperception that politics is relating with corruption and the misuse of the state resources. Therefore, the people presented this challenge to the party systems. If you go to the examples like in other countries in South America, or some leftist-oriented party has taken offices since the late 90s, starting with Lula in Brazil, with Chavez in Venezuela, Korea in Ecuador, Evo in, in Bolivia, uh, Kitchener in Argentina. At the end of the day, in, a, in less than one decade, those parties presented more fails than succeed. Lula is in prison, Korea is, is an outlaw in his own country, Chavez, if you see how Venezuela, how they are suffering. So uh, this is something that was affected for people like myself, that we come from the left, because we were not related to that left, more oriented with more authoritarian ways. For us, our model is more oriented toward the democratic left, countries like the Northern Europe, this, this type of thing. So we think that with the results in Mexico and now in El Salvador, there is a, a new hope. That's a third way in between extreme right wing or an extreme left. This third way, like uh, Najib Bukele in El Salvador, they are more oriented to strengthen democratic institutions to respect the rule of law, to have a lot of concern by human rights, environment, the new agendas of the new world. This is the situation now. We are watching what is going on in other countries like France, United States, and Brazil, Mexico, in order to understand what are those new values that the new generations are demanding for us. I am a baby, I am a baby boomer. And uh, Najib is a millennial, and we have to create dialogue with generations and try to understand what are the new agendas in the new world. Our agendas are different than the agenda from the past. The poverty in the world, pollution, uh, migration, all those are the issues of this current world. And we have to be ready and prepared to deal with them. Completely agree, and I find it really interesting, your analysis, how the emergence of third parties around the world are in reaction to a pendulum swinging from both left-wing and right-wing governments, and it is reflective of the people's search for something else. And I wanted to ask you a little bit around what you just mentioned about people being motivated around corruption. For example, that's really been a large issue in Latin America as a whole most recently. Your campaign was definitely a response to corruption, and it was moving in the direction of transparency and accountability. What does it mean for you as a candidate to have been elected on that kind of a ticket, on that kind of a promise, and how does that affect how you were going to approach some of these more entrenched problems within El Salvador? Well, to tell you the truth, that was our main issue in the campaign trial, to fight against corruption since day first. And in doing that, we already start to put on place all the pieces to create a commission against corruption and against impunity. We will take from the uh, Guatemala experience, and we also will take some good lessons from Honduras, and we will combine. And we will take the best of the two experiences, and we create our own model under our own uh, legal framework and under our own procedures. We identify an, uh, a mechanism 
We have also said here, as you have in your system, that the president can take an executive decision and create a special commission. And the presidents, we will deal with the United Nations, we will deal with the OAS in order to bring all the international support, the international aid, the international resources. And in the meantime, we will be dealing in, in Congress with the approval of the agreement that we will need to sign with the UN and with the OAS. And in all the agencies of the government, we can send the teams of experts to start doing the audits, to start following those cases that has been denounced so far, and we will track them in order to provide evidence to the Attorney General, which is, according our legal framework, the only agency in charge to start any prosecution uh, in court. If the government doesn't have that right, neither uh, other entities, only the Attorney General. So our, our challenge will be to provide to the General Attorney General all the evidence in order that he can make the case in court. One of the things that I'm also interested to hear from you is how El Salvador can be a little bit of an indicator for many of the things to come on these issues like corruption, like migration, like the challenges presented by Venezuela. And I wanted to hear from you, how can El Salvador position itself to be a force that strengthens democracy in the region? You mentioned at least three main issues that we have to take position. Uh, one is migration. This is a real problem, not only for El Salvador, but also for our neighbor country. We are aware about the real causes of that phenomenon. We have to go to the roots of the problem. And the roots of the problem is the violence in the communities and the poor condition of living, lack of opportunities, lack of jobs, studies, whatever. The Jews get desperate and they have two choices, either to be part of the gangs or leave the country for new life, basically in the north, in the United States. This is something that we have to deal with. Secondly, the violence itself. The poverty creates the condition for the violence. Organized crime has taken root in this part of the region because when the war against the drug laws in Mexico was implemented by the government of Calderón and Peña Nieto, they pushed them back to Central America and then we became in a corridor. So in this way, we would like to identify who can be our partner in the fight against those phenomena. And we are sure that one of them is the U.S. government to invest in the Northern Triangle to, to improve the life of the communities in the region. But now we have another ally in the government of Mexico. They are aware that they have to develop the south border of Mexico, programs to invest in the southern part of their border. We would like to make a, a sort of partnership. The authorities of the southern states of Mexico with the Central America neighbor countries can create a region of development, of prosperity. And in that way, our people will need to take routes to the north. And the drug dealers and all those traffickers won't find the condition to do the crime. And thirdly, after violence and migration, you mentioned uh, the case of Venezuela, it should be the same case of Nicaragua. Those two countries that are suffering now the mismanagement of dictatorships. The bottom line is the lack of public liberties, the lack of conditions to develop the rule of law. All the standards for a democracy, they don't match. 
And, and this is a personal perception. I am not talking on behalf of the current government of Salvador, nor the new government, President Bukele, who will decide how our government will behave in the international and multilateral bodies. thank our guest again for taking the time to speak with us and shed some light on the changes taking place in El Salvador. We also regularly update our blog, democracyspeaks.org, with insights and analysis from around the world. Check it out for more on what's going on globally. Be sure to review the podcast and give us your feedback at podcast at iri.org. Until next time, I'm Travis Green, and thanks for listening to Global.